This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Bick. Today is Thursday, and today's Shia in Parshat HaShavuot will be given by Harav David Silverberg. Those of you who use the website of the Virtual Beit Midrash will be familiar with Harav Silverberg, who has been writing the Salt Pages, our daily Four Minutes of Torah, Daily Dvar Torah, and Harav Silverberg has been writing the Salt Pages for the last couple of years. Today he'll be giving the Pashat Shavua, Pashat Vayechi. The share will be 38 minutes. At the end of the year, I will be back with today's Halacha Yomit. So this is Pasha, Pashat Vayechi, I'd like to discuss uh, a number of things that appear towards the end of the Parsha, after Yaakov's death, uh, the Torah tells us, Pasuk says that the brothers, Yosef's brothers, saw that their father died, and they figured, they were afraid, they were concerned that now Yosef might, uh, might despise them. Now he might treat them with hostility. And he will now uh, use this opportunity to pay them back for all the mistreatment that he suffered um, at their hands. By Tzavua Yosef Leymar, so they sent a message to Yosef, Avichat Siva, the same of Soleymar, they claimed that Yaakov had instructed before his death, Kol Samurub Yosef, Ana Sana Pesha Achecha Vachata Samki Ra'ogamalucha, that uh, Yaakov instructed that they should, <coughs> that they should forgive, the, that, that Yosef, excuse me, should forgive his brothers for uh, for what they did to him. So now they ask Yosef, They ask him to forgive them for uh, their crime, the crime uh, that they committed against him. Yosef cried when he heard them talking. The brothers then went ahead, they prostrated themselves before him. They offer themselves as slaves to Yosef. Yosef, of course, uh, consoles them, he comforts them, and he gives them some reassurance. Yosef, He tells them not to be afraid. Because he says, I am not in God's place. You thought about me evil, you wish to do me evil, but but HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he intended this entire uh, incident, this whole episode, for the best. Because in the end, ultimately, it served to to save uh, Yaakov and his family, and in truth, to save everyone in the region from starvation. Of course, uh, Yosef rose to power in Egypt, and he was able to sustain the entire region during the uh, difficult years of famine. The Atah al have no fear, Yosef reassures them. I will continue supporting you and your children. He comforted them. And he spoke to them uh, smoothly, uh, words of consolation. The, uh, perhaps the major question in this, in this episode is, what suddenly triggered the brothers' fear? Why all of a sudden now were they concerned that Yosef would take revenge against them? Recall, this is now uh, 17 years after the brothers came to Egypt. We know from the beginning of the Pasha that uh, Yaakov lived in Egypt 17 years. 
So let's say uh, Yosef. He we know we know from Parshas Miketz that he uh, he wrote the power in Mitzrayim at the age of thirty, and then there were uh, there were nine years until the brothers came. The brothers came during the second year of the famine. So let's say Yosef was thirty nine. Um, so you add another uh, seventeen. So talking, he's now uh, fifty six. They sold him into slavery. He was just seventeen. So we're talking almost forty years. Okay, this happened almost forty years earlier. They've been living together in Egypt already for 17 years. Why all of a sudden now would the brothers be concerned that Yosef would uh, exact retribution from them? Right? What suddenly happened? From the passage, it's clear that uh, Yaakov's death had something to do with it. The passage says, Yosef's brothers saw that Yaakov died. And for some reason, Yaakov's death gave rise to the concern that Yosef. Now that Yaakov was dead, they were concerned that uh, that they might be mistreated by Yosef. So the Midrashim uh, addressed this question, and uh, Rashi seems to be paraphrasing one, one Midrash, as we'll see there's a little bit of confusion as to uh, whether Rashi and the Midrash are really saying the same thing. Rashi here brings down, he says in Paragnon, uh, Prophet says, Rav, what does it mean that they saw that Yaakov died? He kiru b'misato etel Yosef. They noticed that something changed with Yosef after the death of Yaakov. They had been accustomed to eating at Yosef's table with Yaakov. And he, would, he Yosef, would bring them close. Meaning he would be very friendly to them. Because of the honor of his father. Out of respect to Yaakov. Yosef was uh, particularly friendly to his brothers, and we should make Yaakov, once Yaakov died, lo kervan, He no longer uh, befriended them in that manner. So that gave rise to the brothers' concern. All of a sudden, Yosef is not quite as friendly to them as he had been before them. Uh, first, uh, the question is why? Well, what, uh, what was Yosef thinking? Okay, so the brothers misunderstood what Yosef was doing. But so, but we should try to figure out so why did Yosef act that way? Why did he suddenly change his attitude uh, to his brothers after Yaakov's death? So this is what I meant before when I said that it's unclear whether Rashi is really referring to the Medrash. Um, the Medrash, in the corresponding passage in the Medrash, we find uh, a fuller explanation as to what exactly happened. Uh, the Medrash is in Barishas Rabbah Perakuf. So Belevi Omar that Yosef did not invite them uh, to his uh, to his table. Amar Rabbi Tanchuma, so the Medrash was Rabbi Tanchuma who explained why. Who don't escape in ever Hashem Shemayim? Yosef's intentions were sincere with Hashem Shemayim. Amar he said as follows: Listen, Avar, in the past, Abba Moshivani the Malam Yehuda Shehumelach. My father Yaakov, he would make me sit at the Lamala, I guess, at the front of the table, at the head of the table, and at the, in the seat of honor. Uh, the Malam Yehuda, excuse me, that he would have me sit, he, he would have me sit at the, uh, at the position higher than Yehuda, Shuhun Arachim Yehuda was the, uh, one whose tribe was destined for royalty, who the Malam Yehudain, Shuhun And Yosef would also sit in a more respected, uh, seat than Yehudain, who was the firstborn. The Achshav, now says Yosef, ain't no bedin, it's not proper, it's not appropriate, Sheshiv the Malam So when Yaakov was alive, Yosef said, then, uh, yeah, hey, this is what Yaakov wanted, so, uh, so I did it. But now that Yaakov is not here, 
um, I prefer not to have to sit at a higher, uh, at a more respected position than they. And that's why he stopped inviting them. The Hengelamukain, but they did not see it that way. Ela, you lose the name of Yosef. They interpreted this not as uh, Yosef's concern for the honor of Yehuda and Uruvain, but rather they saw it as a sign of his hostility that he had uh, retained all this time. So according to the Medrash, what Yosef was really doing was he was trying to preserve the honor of Yehuda and Ruvain. Plus, you know, the question uh, might be asked, why don't he just invite them and have uh, Yehuda or Ruvain sit in the most, uh, in the more respected seat? Perhaps, uh, given his position in Egypt, that would not have been appropriate. Uh, he was, after all, the Mishnah Malach. But in any event, according to the Medrash, Yosef's intentions were sincere. He wanted to uh, avoid... Uh, appearing as if he was in a more important and more distinguished position than Yehuda and Reuven. That's the Medrash and Bereshit Rabbah. The Maharami Prague, in his Gur Aryeh, which is his, uh, commentator, his commentary on Rashi's parish, he discusses this, um, this comment of Rashi, and he gives the following explanation. Parish, Ki kodem lochen, before Yaakov's death, hayam mekarev osam yosem in hashir, he would he would befriend, befriend them uh, to a considerable extent, much more than uh, a brother would normally would. Yosem in Hashir Asher Roi, more than we would have expected. He would befriend them. Achi Ochlim Al Shulchano Tamid. They would always eat at his table. Ve'achshav Lo Kervan Kolkach. But now he wasn't so friendly to them. He was still uh, nice to them. He was still the, uh, the brother. He still treated them as such. But he wasn't uh, especially friendly to them as he was during Yaakov's lifetime. About in the first book here on Cloud, the Maharal says uh, that you can't explain, there's no way to say that Yosef Bechlau uh, did not uh, relate to his brothers anymore, that he just dissociated himself from the family. Okay, it's inconceivable that, um, that Yosef Hatadik would not uh, treat his brothers as, uh, as his close family and that he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't befriend them. Then the Malach gives a different explanation. So, Yeshvamar, Shalok Kervan Klau. Or you could say that uh, in Echanami, true, Yosef did not, he, after Yaakov's death, he stopped inviting them altogether. The Zen Bidnek, he called them Shemez Yaakov, Loha Yashibur Avehem. Before Yaakov's death, there was no animosity by the Egyptians towards Bnei Yisrael. Loha Yashibur Rak Achamisaz Yaakov. It was only after Yaakov's death that the Egyptians uh, started abusing Bnei Yisrael. So how did this affect Yaakov's treatment of his brothers? So Yosef was afraid. He was concerned. In other words, says the Maharal, Yosef was concerned that if he befriends his brothers, if he is uh, very close to them, then the Egyptians will grow suspicious. Yosef uh, took note of the fact that the Egyptians after Yaakov's death were no longer so hospitable to his brothers and their families, and he was therefore concerned that they they grow suspicious that the brothers are so close to uh, to such a powerful person in Egypt, to Yosef that would give that would give rise that would fuel the Egyptians' innate suspicions of the Yisrael that we see in next week's Pasha Pasha Shmos that uh, the Mitzvah said that they were afraid that the Yisrael became too powerful and they might. Uh, join a, or lead a rebellion against uh, the Egyptian monarchy, Yosef felt that these suspicions would be fueled if the brothers were too close to Yosef, given Yosef's uh, position of power in the Zion. So therefore, 
uh, Yosef decided that it was in everyone's best interest for him to uh, separate himself somewhat from the brothers in order not to uh, raise any suspicions among the Egyptians. So the Maral, he gives two explanations then for, for what Rashi means, that when that Yosef stopped inviting his brothers after Yaakov's death, either before Yaakov's death he was especially kind to them, above and beyond what we would normally expect of a brother, uh, I guess out of respect for Yaakov. And the second explanation is that uh, after Yaakov's death there was already uh, um, a note of hostility between the Egyptians and uh, the Yisrael, and therefore Yosef sought to avoid suspicion by no longer inviting his brothers, by not being quite as close to them as he had been beforehand. Uh, what's clear from the Maharal is that he did not explain Rashi as based on this Medrash in Barashas Rabbah. Um, I don't know if Maharal didn't see this Medrash, or he just thought that Rashi was giving his own explanation that did not necessarily correspond to what the Medrash said. But in any event, the Medrash, according to the Medrash, Yosef stopped inviting his brothers because, um, because he did not want to infringe upon the honor of Yehuda and Ruvain, and according to the Maharal, he did it either Either there was no reason, it was just, uh, he was especially kind to them during Yaakov's lifetime, and now he, he, just, he was a normal brother. And uh, the second explanation is that he wanted to avoid uh, suspicion. In any event, according to this uh, Mahalach, what, what fueled the brothers' concerns, what, uh, what got them worried about Yaakov's treatment, about Yosef's treatment to them, was the fact that Yosef was no longer as hospitable to them as he had been during Yaakov's lifetime. There's another measure. That gives a completely different uh, explanation. This medrash is the medrash Tanchuma in Pashas Vayechi. The medrash asks our question: What, what did the brothers see? What did they notice that uh, suddenly gave rise to their fears? When they were returning from burying Yaakov, they saw that Yosef went to give a bracha by that very pit into which the brothers had thrown him 40 years earlier. And Yosef recited a bracha there just like a person is obligated to recite a bracha at the site where a miracle occurred to him. And the Medrash says the bracha you're supposed to recite is so Yosef, on the way back to Mitzrayim, from burying Yaakov, he stopped off at his pit, and he, he wanted to recite a bracha. The Chevan Shira'u came, when the brothers saw that, Amru, they said, Achshav Shemitzavinu, Lo'yistinu Yosef. It must be, said the brothers, that Yosef uh, still held his feelings of resentment. In other words, they misinterpreted his, this um, stopping off at the pit of the recite a bracha, they misinterpreted it as, a, uh, as an indication that Yosef is still uh, keenly aware of the way he was mistreated by his brothers and he might now seek to exact revenge from them for that crime. There is a, a geographical problem with this medrash. Yaakov, of course, was buried in Mars and Achpeva and Kevron. The pit where Yosef was sold, um, that pit is uh, well north of Kevron, uh, in the area of Shechem, in Dothan. And that's a little bit problematic, what Yosef, it's not exactly on the way from Egypt to Hebron, Dothan is not exactly on the way, so there is a geographical problem with this Medrash, I, uh, I do not have an explanation, but be it as it may, this is what the Medrash, uh, this is what the Medrash says. The, uh, the Torah Shalema, on this Pasuk, Torah Pasuk Tezavav, he brings down from Mishnah Rabbi Eliezer. The Mishnah Rabbi Eliezer, 
um, brings this uh, incident of Yosef and his brothers as an example of the principle that Sha'adam Sarech Hamakam. That a person has to, uh, so to speak, fulfill his obligations towards other people the same way he seeks to fulfill his obligations towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, it's not enough just to do what is right in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but one must also endeavor to avoid any suspicion on the part of other people. And the Nishnas Rabbi Eliezer says that we have sources for this both in the Torah and in the Vim as well as in the Ksuvim. And the marker from the source of this from the Torah is first and foremost the famous postdoc in Parshas Makos. The Yisam Nikim Yashemu Yisrael. You should be clean. Your record should be clear from both Hashem and both from Israel. In other words, that a person should make sure that he has a clean record, not only in the eyes of Akash Baruch Hu, but also in the eyes of man. Meaning he shouldn't do anything that should give rise to any suspicions regarding his conduct. So in other words, a person should not do something even though it's inherently, intrinsically innocent, and there's nothing uh, wrong about uh, about the action itself. If it could be misinterpreted, a person has to be very careful uh, not to do this in front of other people who might get the wrong idea, who might misunderstand what he's doing and think that he's doing something wrong. The Chen who Omer says the Mishnah Shabbat Avi Azar, the Apostle also says, "Vayiru Achei Yosef Kinei Savihem." Marau Omer Rabbi Yitzchak Rau Et Yosef Kesachazem Lidbar Aviv Halach Vehitzit B'Toch Habor. Okay, he brings down the story from the Medrash. Tanchuma, that Yosef stopped off at the pit. The Hulbon is copying out of the Shemayim. He, his intentions were sincere to give praise to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Amma, Yosef said, Come and explore to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shetimanim Yosef went there to give praise, to exclaim what a wondrous miracle it was, what a HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved me from this pit. They, however, didn't understand what, uh, what he was thinking. The Amru, and they said, We used to name him. And they said that he might, and they were afraid that now he, he despises them. Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi, and they, now they mean the message from Rachel's Rabba, that they misinterpreted Yosef's uh, change of policy after Yaakov's death, that he no longer invited them the way he had during Yaakov's lifetime. So even though Yosef's decision to go to the pit, and then later to invite them to, uh, to the Suda, even though these decisions, these um, these actions were intrinsically uh, totally sincere and innocent and there was no, uh, it didn't reflect any hostility or resentment on his part. Nevertheless, the uh, Mishnah Shabbat seems to uh, criticize Yosef for doing this, seeing it as a violation of this rule of the Yisam Nekim Hashem Yisrael. And it's very important for a person not only to do what's right, but also to make sure that what he does cannot be misinterpreted as doing something wrong. I might add that in, in the particular case of Yosef, this becomes uh, even more critical, even more, um, even more of a critical lesson, given the uh, the history of, the, of his relationship with his brothers. Of course, there was uh, there was a lot of tension, a lot of friction between Yosef and his brothers, and therefore it's even more important. It's even more critical for a person who had who uh, who did have a fight, who had uh, a period of tension, of friction. With another person, it's even more critical that he goes out of his way to show that he no longer harbors any uh, ill will, any uh, bad feelings towards that person. As important as it is, as it is generally to ensure the use of Nikim Hashem that a person does not uh, allow for any uh, misinterpretation of his conduct, for any suspicion as to uh, the sincerity of what he does, this of course is, it becomes even more crucial when people have a history, when two people have a history 
of uh, contention of strife, it is even more crucial that um, after the relationship is restored, it's very critical that they go out of their way to reassure the other person, to make it clear that they no longer have any resentment towards one another. So far, we've seen uh, two explanations as to why the brothers, suddenly after Yaakov's death, were, were concerned that Yosef might now seek to take revenge from them. I saw a very interesting uh, idea, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hankin, he has uh, an English book called New Interpretations on the Parsha, and in his book he suggests uh, a very interesting idea to explain why perhaps the brothers right now, at this point, were concerned. If you look back at the Pesukim, at Yosef's response to uh, to the brothers, he reassures them, and he says in Pesach Chafavis, don't worry, he says, I will support you, I will support you, I will feed you and your children. From this reassurance, we can perhaps uh, infer what was concerning the brothers. If Yosef here feels, finds it necessary to reassure them that he will continue to, that he will support them, then presumably that was their concern. It seems like that's what worries them. They were worried that uh, Yosef would stop, would not, would no longer feed them. Now, while it is true that when the brothers came down to Mitzrayim, that was the arrangement that Yosef would feed them. In Parshat Vayigash, after Yosef reveals himself to his brothers, he tells them to bring down Yaakov, and he says, "Bring Yaakov down and tell him that I will support him. I'll feed him during the remaining years of famine." He, t- he tells them to tell Yaakov, I will support you there in the land of Goshen and Mitzrayim, because there will be another five years of famine. So true, that was the initial arrangement, but he makes it clear, that was the arrangement because they were in the middle of a period of drought. Yosef, of course, based on his interpretation of Paro's dream, knew that the, uh, this drought would last for five years, for five years after uh, the two years that had already gone by. So uh, the arrangement seems to have been that he would support them during these years of famine. But of course, that was 17 years ago. Uh, the last 12 years, it would seem, uh, there was no famine. So why did the brothers feel dependent on Yosef for their livelihood? Okay, why did why were they scared that Yosef... Uh, I mean, besides the question of why suddenly now they were afraid of Yosef, the question arises as to why, why they were dependent on him in the first place. So the answer, as I think points out, the answer is, it appears in this Tifrei, a comment of the Tifrei in Sefer Devarim, Perez Uh The Tifrei uh, indicates that once Yaakov died, the famine returned. When Yaakov came to Egypt, the way Rashi brings down in Pasha Saigash, that um, when Yaakov came to Egypt, the famine came to an end. And actually, I think Rashi brings it down here in Pasha Saigash. Um, in any event, it was clear, there's a measure that Rashi brings that uh, the famine ended after Yaakov uh, passed away. I'm um, sorry, after Yaakov came to Egypt. And But once Yaakov died, says the Sifrei, the famine came back. So if so, maybe that's what concerned the brothers. The brothers were scared because all of a sudden there was a famine, there was a famine, there was hunger, they didn't have enough food, they were dependent on Yosef. And so now they felt uh, they're dependent on Yosef, uh, so they were afraid maybe Yosef will use this opportunity of their dependence on him um, he used this opportunity to uh, exact revenge for what they had done to him many years earlier. And another interesting idea as to why the brothers were suddenly afraid. Now, the simplest explanation, however, 
Um, after we've seen uh, these three, perhaps the simplest explanation is very simply that uh, they felt that so long as Yaakov was alive, Yosef wouldn't uh, wouldn't seek to harm them. He wouldn't do any, he wouldn't try to uh, hurt them out of respect to uh, Yaakov. Uh, similarly, we find a similar thing. So at the end of Parshas Toldos, uh, Yaakov, uh, as we all know, he deceives Yitzchak and he takes the bracha that was intended for Esau. Uh, Esau, of course, is, uh, is very angry. And the Pasuk says in Pasuk Toldos, Perek Chavzayin, Pasuk Memale, Vayistome Yitzavet Yaakov, Al HaBrachah Shebechol Aviv. Esau is very angry at Yaakov because of the bracha that he took from Yitzchak. Vayomer Esau Belibol, so Esau said to himself, Yikuhu Yimei Ezel Avi, the mourning period for my father Yitzchak will soon be upon us. The Ahagaret Yaakov Achi. And at that point, I will then kill my brother. Uh, Rashi explains, what does it mean? Esau, as we know, excelled in the, uh, in the midst of Kibbutz of Ha'en. He didn't want to cause his father any distress. So uh, his plan was to wait till Yitzchak would pass on, and only at that point would he take his revenge against Yaakov. So uh, presumably that's what, that, was, that could be also what the brothers were thinking. The brothers were afraid that Yosef was so nice to them that all time it must have been only because of his respect for Yaakov because he didn't want to cause Yaakov any further distress. But now that Yaakov was, uh, had passed away, they were concerned that perhaps, that perhaps um, he would use this opportunity to, uh, to take revenge from them. So that could, that, that's, I think, the, uh, the simplest ex- um, explanation. I once came across uh, an esoteric source, a uh, paper Yad David. Um, the Machabah's name is Rav David Yehuda Zoberstein. He quotes a Medrash, which I haven't seen in any other source, but the Medrash, uh, very surprisingly, gives us a completely different uh, idea as to, um, as to what concerns the brothers. The Medrash picks up on the double formulation of the brothers, the Hashed Yashiv Ranu. The brothers were afraid, the Hashed Yashiv Ranu, that Yosef would, uh, would pay them back for what they had done to him. And this measure says that the first term, Hashev, that refers to the more obvious uh, concern that Yosef himself will turn against them and uh, take revenge from them. The second term, Yashiv, that uh, expresses a completely different fear, namely the afraid of Esau. Esau, the, the cousin Esau. Uh, for some reason, at this point, they were, uh, they were scared of Esau. Obviously, the question is, why would they be afraid of Esau now? I mean, Esau is out in Seir. They're in Mitzrayim, they're under the protection of Yosef, so why all of a sudden um, would they be afraid of, uh, of Yosef? So, so with the simplest explanation, and, and the say for the Yad David gives this explanation, the explanation probably is uh, based on a Medrash that, uh, that already when Yosef was born, already at the moment Yosef was born, Yaakov through HaKodesh knew that... Uh, that his victory over over Esau would be through Yosef. Hey, Rashi brings it down in Pasha's Vayese. It says, Vayikha Shei Yodav Rachel et Yosef, when Yosef was born, Vayom Yaakov Elavon Shalcheni Velachel Mekamil Vatsi, Yaakov tells Lavan he wants to go home. He wants to return to Israel. And Rashi says, what happened? Why did Yaakov suddenly decide to go home? Rashi says, based on the gracious Rabbah, Yosef is the, is the nemesis of Esau. He is the one most capable of defeating Esau. And Rashi we found the famous passage from Sefer Avadia, that uh, Yosef is the flame 
that will consume the straw, which is Esau. That Esau has no power against Yosef. Uh, based on this Medrash, we can understand perhaps what the, uh, the Medrash was talking about with this Hashem uh, Yashiv Lano, that uh, the brothers were afraid of, of Esau. They were afraid that if Yosef is no longer protecting them, if Yosef is no longer working on their behalf, if he's no longer, uh, if he's turning against them, then they're uh, vulnerable by the uh, by this perennial enemy of Esau. I thought perhaps uh, another uh, another possibility. I, I really don't know if this is what the Medrash had in mind, but it's worth uh, it's worth mentioning in any event. Uh, the Abarbanel in Sefer Yeshayahu has a lengthy discussion regarding the uh, the famous association that Chazal draw between Edom and the Roman Empire. As we know, uh, Chazal viewed the Romans as uh, descendants from Esau, as from the nation of Edom that Esau founded. And uh, many, uh, many scholars have, uh, have discussed how, how is this possible. I mean, there's no geographic connection whatsoever between the nation of Edom, which is east, southeast of Eretz Israel, and uh, Italy. So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, very problematic how Chazal came upon this idea that the Romans were descended from Edom. So the Rabbi Nel cites different, uh, he brings different opinions on the matter, and he himself believes that the answer lies in a historical account. He cites, uh, he brings uh, Josephus and others. There's a historical account that when the Yisrael were returning from Canaan, after the buried Yaakov, they were going back to uh, Mitzrayim, they came under attack by Esau's children and grandchildren. That's so Esau's uh, children and grandchildren attacked Yaakov's sons as they were returning from the burial in uh, in Hebron. And the Yisrael fought back. They defeated Esau, and they even took the cat. They even took the captive. The captive's name was Sifo. He's one of the people mentioned in the genealogical record of Esau's family and the other parts of Esau. And the other Excuse me. So they captured this man, Tso, who later fled to Carthage, and ultimately he settled in Italy, and his name was changed to, uh, to Janus, who was one of the heroes of uh, ancient Roman legends. In any event, there's this whole story that uh, the brothers uh, came under attack from Esau, and, and Josephus claims that this captive that Benesha took, he later founded the, uh, the Roman Empire, and that's how Hazal got to this idea that the Romans were descended from Edom. Be that as it may, if, well, if this is true, if there was this battle that had, that occurred between Esau and Esau's uh, children and grandchildren, and uh, Yaakov's uh, children and grandchildren, then uh, perhaps we can understand. They, the brothers thought that uh, they were vulnerable to further attacks by uh, by Esau, by the people of Edom, and they felt that they needed, since they were living in Italian, they they needed Yosef's protection. And if Yosef would uh, seek revenge against them, then, uh, obviously they would not have that protection that they so desperately needed from, from Asa. Okay, the last point I'd like to make regarding, um, regarding this story is the brother's offer to Yosef. They tell him, he named Bechala Avadim. The Pastor says that they died before him. And they said, we want to be your slaves. That's how he, that's how they wanted to uh, make amends, so to speak, by being, by being, uh, his slaves. So that's in Pasuk Yilchet. We want to be your slaves. 
There's a very fascinating measure that Rashi brings down in his Paris with Sefer Hosea. This is in Hosea Perak Yudbeis, Pasuk Tes. Rashi says, Midrash Agada Hayadois Rabbi Shimon Zatal, I'm sorry, Hayadois Rabbi Shimon Zatal. Rashi is not from Rabbi Shimon. He brings down this measure that says as follows. That Yeruvam, Yeruvam ben Avat, who founded the northern kingdom of Israel, when he was leading his campaign to, to uh, establish this kingdom, to break away from Machus Yehuda, from Chavam, Shlomo's son, who was the king at the time, he said as follows, Yeruvam claimed, I found that I have a Stachov, I have a, uh, a contract, an IOU, so to speak, that I deserve the kingship. What's the Stachov? What was the document that he's referring to? That he said, the ancestors of Bnei Yisrael, meaning Yosef's brothers, they came to Yosef, the ancestor of Yeruvim. Yeruvim was from the tribe of Ephraim, Yosef's son, and Yosef's brothers offered to be uh, to be his slaves. So therefore, Yeruvim ben Avat, who was from from the tribe of Ephraim. He said that I have this star, I have this document that says explicitly, Shakol Yisrael Avadimri, Sha'ami Kana Usam. That my ancestor Yosef, so to speak, purchased them as slaves. And we never find that any of the Yisrael were ever subjects of Yosef in the past. So, so excuse me, so Yerovam now claims the time has come for this debt to be paid back. Now it's time for, once and for all, for the rest of the Yisrael to be subject to be servants of Yosef. And the way that would happen was through Yeruvam's uh, ascension to royal power. That's how Yeruvam wanted to uh, wanted to establish his right to the kingship, to the throne, over the rest of the Yisrael. I think if you want to explain this medrash, I think we should uh, bear in mind another interesting comment of the Ababinel. Many, uh, many Mephoshim and Tisham Arachim, they asked the, uh, the obvious question, Yeruvam, in an effort to uh, delegitimize, so to speak, the Beis Hamikdash, which was, of course, in the, in the territory of Yehuda, in order to ensure that people from his kingdom, from the northern kingdom, were not frequent the Beis Hamikdash, he uh, he set up his own Batei Mikdash. He made two temples, one in uh, Dun and the other in Beisel, and in these temples he put Egle Hazav. There was an Egle Hazav, a golden calf in Dun, and, and a golden calf in Beisel. And many Mephoshim are bothered. What, what was he thinking? Not only what was he thinking, what were B'nai Yisrael thinking? How could they go along with this? Obviously, the story of the Egev Hazav in Sefer, in Sefer Shmos was certainly clear in their memories. They certainly remember that uh, 3,000 people died in a plague as a result of the Chetra Egev, which was one of the most uh, grave incidents in the history of B'nai Yisrael in, in Tanakh. Uh, how, how could they have gone along with it? How, why, why would they follow Yeruvah? Why would they uh, buy into this initiative of worshipping an Ego Hazahav. Uh, so various answers uh, that uh, the Mephoshim suggest, one interesting answer is the Rabag, the Rabag says that during Shlomo's time, the nation enjoyed such uh, wealth and prosperity that they began indulging a lot in uh, celebrations, in parties, in vanity, and they weren't spending enough time learning Torah, in, uh, involved in Umar Torah, and so gradually their, uh, they lost focus, and this led to the process of deterioration, which ultimately resulted in their willingness to uh, worship uh, to worship the Safar to worship the Golden Cap. 
the Rabbanel has a very revolutionary idea to, uh, to answer this question. He claims that the, that the Igre Hazav that Yeravam set up in Dan and Basel were not intended for Avodah at all. These were not religious articles. He didn't uh, encourage the Nathal to worship golden calves. Rather, the calf, or the cow, was the symbol of the tribes of, of Yosef. As we know from Pashat Zadok HaBracha, Moshe and his bracha to Yosef, Bechor Shalal HaDelo. He refers to Yosef as a bull. So uh, bulls and cows, that was the symbol, so to speak, of the, uh, of the tribes of Yosef. So what Yeravim was doing was he wanted to glorify um, the, the tribe of Yosef. He made this into a uh, tribal conflict. He was... Uh, he wanted to uh, com- he wanted to celebrate to emphasize the power and the importance of the tribe of Yosef as the great 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 tribe of Yosef, and that 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 was the point of setting up these golden caps. Now, of course, in the Pesukim and Sefer Malachim, it's really not so uh, it's really not so simple. And by the way, for those of you who want to check it out, it's Malachim Aleph Pesukim Beis Pesukim Chazav to Lamed Gimel. That's the Pesukim that describes uh, what Yeravam's um, initiative. Of setting up the worship of Yehudah Hazav, there it seems Yehudah says Eva Eva Yisrael. He uses the exact same uh, formulation as we find in Pasha's Kisisa in the description of the original Eva Hazav and Aniba. It, it certainly seems uh, seems that this was a um, a religious alternative to the Beit Hamikdash. But in any event, what the Malbim is getting at is that Yehudah led this campaign by rekindling the flames of conflict that had been dormant for so many centuries. These flames of conflict, the, uh, the conflict between Yosef and his brothers, these tensions that, uh, that seem to have subsided. Here in Pashat Bayechi, Yeravam seems to go, go out of his way to, um, to ignite it once again, to rekindle those flames of strife and, and, and contention. And it's very interesting that, that precisely this incident here at the end of Pashat Bayechi the story of the brothers offering themselves as slaves to Yosef, and Yosef telling them, no, it's okay. I have forgiven you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted it for the best, and I have no plans of taking revenge. Precisely this incident, in which we find the final reconciliation between Yosef and his brothers, it is precisely this episode which Yeravam capitalizes on in an, in an attempt to, uh, to start the fight all over again. And well, where this uh, um, this um, suggestion by the brothers that they serve Yosef as slaves this was intended as a means of reconciliation and ending the conflict Yeravam picks up on it and he tries to set the conflict all over again based on, on his very uh, conversation and we see uh, perhaps the message there is is the, uh, we have to take the initiative to end conflicts rather than to start them up again and we have to be able to uh, leave um, the hard feelings of the past, leave them in the past, and uh, to try to work on restoring relationships rather than re- rather than invoking once again, bringing up uh, past conflicts, which could only lead to more strife and more animosity. You have been listening to Harav David Silverberg, the Pashat Shavuashef for Pashat Vayechi. The Gemara in Brachot Daf Tetzav has a statement in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. Harotzeh lekabel alav ol machut shemayim shlema. One who wishes to accept the yoke of heaven, 
perfectly. The word Shlema refers to the word Malchut. It's a feminine noun and a feminine adjective. In other words, one who wishes to accept the fullness of the yoke of the heavenly kingdom should do the following. Yifneh, Yitov Yadav, Yanech Tfilin, Yikrak Chiyatshma V'Yitparel. He should cleanse his body. It means he should go to the bathroom. Yitov Yadav, you should wash your hands. Both of these two things are called by the Rambam Tikkun Haguf. If someone is accepting upon himself the heavenly kingdom, so the object of the heavenly kingdom is his body. The kingdom of heaven is not found on continents, on land, on monuments, on rivers, on oceans. It's found on human beings. People who accept the yoke of heaven are creating, are the, ves- the vessel, the vehicle for the kingdom of heaven. And therefore it's proper as the very container of the majesty of God that one should, the Rambam's words are tikkun hagof, one fixes, one completes, one advances the body. And Rabbi Yochanan said two things, yifneh v'yital yadayim, one should empty it of things which are improper to be before the king. And secondly, yital yadayim, the hands, which are the aspect of man which does things, man's actions, not merely his existence, but his actions, things that he advances, fixes, changes, builds. That's what the hands represent. So there's a higher level called nitilat yadayim. One washes one hand, one's hands to show that they have been dedicated to God's kingdom. A kohen in the Beit HaMikdash has to wash his hands and his feet before he performs a service in the Beit HaMikdash and a halachic term for that is Kiddush Yadayim Baraglayim the sanctification of one's hands and feet why is it called sanctification? they don't become holy in the technical halachic sense the word sanctification means dedication washing one's hands is a way of showing that they are dedicated to a certain purpose they're not simply existing for whatever you want but they're dedicated to a purpose one washes one's hands before one's one davens to show that they are dedicated, in the words of Rabbi Yochanan, to the kingdom, to the service of God. Yaniach tefillin, he should put on tefillin. Tefillin are the uniform of one who serves God. Today we don't wear tefillin all day, but the pasuk which talks about tefillin doesn't indicate that tefillin should only be at one time or another time. Jews wear tefillin. Various reasons which we will discuss on a different occasion tefillin are not worn all day. However, the, the way a Jew should look, if you're dressed in the full uniform of a Jew, a full uniform of one who is accepting the yoke of heaven, then yaniach tefillin, v'yikrat chiyat shma Two things are the content of kabbalat or malchut shamayim shlema, chiyat shma, which is literally the declaration of allegiance Kabbalat Ol Machut it's accepting that God is King, and Tfila and Shmonesri, and Davening, praying to God, indicating that all our needs, and all our hopes, and all our aspirations are addressed to God. So, this fivefold picture is what Rabbi Yochanan calls Kabbalat Ol Machut Shemaim 
The Gemara adds that anyone who does this, the Torah views it as though, which is a clear expression of the point I made in the beginning. A person who does these five things has it's as though he has built an altar and sacrificed a sacrifice on it. Which altar? Where is the altar? The altar is the body of the human being. In other words, in a world which is secular, which is mundane, which seems to serve itself, there are certain places which are dedicated to God. When there was a Beit HaMikdash, that was the Beit HaMikdash. Today the Beit HaMikdash does not exist and the altar is destroyed. But a human being, a Jew who serves God, is himself an altar. Which is why there is tikkun haguf, why one has to cleanse one's body. And one has to dress one's body, the tshivin, the way that it should look. And then when one says kriyat and shmanesai, that's the hikrif koban, that's the, he has brought, he has brought a sacrifice. So a person, by doing these, these preliminary actions, is making himself into an altar in the name of God. And by saying these two things, kriyat and tshiva, he is sacrificing a sacrifice. This statement in Chazal is uh, the basis, one of the two bases, for the halakha that it's very important to be wearing tefillin at the time of Kriyat Shema and Tefillah. The fee, according to the law in the Torah, wants to wear tefillin all the time. We've limited tefillin for various reasons. However, the minimum, the time when we're especially careful to have tefillin is Kriyat Shema and Tefillah and Kriyat Shema there's an extra reason the Gemara Brachot also says that one who reads Kriyat Shema does not have tefillin it's as though he were giving false testimony since in Kriyat Shema you say that one should have tefillin on his head and tefillin on his arm if you read it and don't have it it's almost like hypocrisy in the words of the Gemara it's a false testimony so there's a special need to have tefillin when reading Kriyat Shema and also the Shema because of the a saying of Rav Yochanan with which we began. Obviously, it's a time one doesn't have to fit in for one reason or another, and the time is running short, and one will miss davening. So then, one says Kriyat Shema and Tefillah without Tefillin. As far as Kriyat Shema is concerned, there's something really wrong, having, as though, given a false testimony, and therefore, uh, many folks can think that if you had to read Kriyat Shema without Tefillin, when you get to Tefillin later on, you should say Kriyat Shema again to show that you didn't mean to say Kriyat Shema without, um, without, without Tefillin. Uh, but Lechatechila, it's best, one should definitely make sure to not say Kriyat Shema without Tefillin. And similarly for Tefillat Shema Esrei of Shacharit, here it's not mandatory, but he who wishes to be a vehicle, a vessel, of the kingdom of heaven on earth, this is the proper way in which it should be in which it should be done. That's it for today. Tomorrow, Friday, Erev Shabbat, Pashad Vayechi, we will have a program for uh, the Erev Shabbat program. A little bit about Pashat Shavua, a little bit about Halacha. Till then, this is Ezra Beck from Gush Etzion, wishing you a call to and have a good day. This is KMTT, Kimi Tzion, Tetzay Torah, Udvar Hashem, Mirushalayim.